This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And now it's time for our special series, Life Lessons from Dr. Bob. Dr. Robert Shillman doesn't go by his formal name. I didn't want to be called Dr. Shillman. It sounded to me too pretentious. So he goes by just Dr. Bob. I have a, uh, a sort of comedic streak about me. An unusual name to call someone. But Dr. Bob isn't your ordinary guy. I like to do things in a funny, different way. A memorable way. With only $86,000, he started this little company called Cognex that became the worldwide leader in machine vision systems. On the arm of the robot is mounted a Cognex vision system, which looks out at the world and says that's where the windshields are, this is the one on top, and this is where you should pick it up. And after 36 years of cultivating a unique culture with over 1,400 employees, Dr. Bob's decided to share the life lessons that he's learned along the way. And today's lesson is titled, Perseverance. when we hire people, we look at their resumes. And uh, when I look at executive resumes, we have an opening for senior VP of marketing. I'll look at that resume and I'll write down next to each of that person's prior employments, how many years he or she spent at that. And then I take an average. And if it's not five years, I toss the resume away. I don't even read it. Okay. I just see how many years, how many years. And if it's not five or more, I throw it away. If it is five, then I look at it in detail to see if that person fits the job and if I want to go to the next stage. So this is something that we are losing in our society, the understanding that it takes a fair amount of time to get anything done. To destroy something, you can do it in seconds. You can destroy a building, you can destroy a country probably in seconds. But to do something value-add, to build something takes time. To build a career takes time. To be effective at your job takes time. So we want people who are going to stay with our company. We're going to invest in them. We're going to train them. We're going to teach them about our company, about what their role is, about our customers, whatever it takes. It takes a long time. So we want people who are going to stay. And we reward people who do stay. I kicked this off very early. And we call them perseverance awards. We have them 3, 5, 10, 15, 20, 25, 30, and now 35. There are three people in the company who have now been here 35 years or more. Fantastic perseverance. And of course, they've been successful with the company. They wrote it all the way. So let me tell you a little bit about these rewards. The first award is the three years. It happens to be a watch. I don't happen to be wearing it today, but it's a watch engraved on the back, your start date. It's a nice watch. It's a Casio, it turns out. It's, well, Everything we do is sort of special. I, I spent hours choosing the watch, okay? The watch happens to be something called an Echo Drive. I, I don't know why we're talking about it here, but it's, it, it talks about the level of detail that I'm involved in. Echo Drive watch. It is run by solar power. You don't see it. It looks like a fine watch, but there are solar cells inside the watch, and it's chargeable even by room light. Room light. And once charged, it can stay in the dark in your drawer for six months and still keep the time, okay? You never have to buy batteries. It's a fantastic watch, okay? Fantastic concept. 
So it's perseverance. That watch is going to be around as long as you're going to be around. So that's the three-year thing. We give you a nice watch with your, the, the date when you began engraved on the back. Then it accelerates from there. I won't go through every one of them, but I think at five years, it's three extra days vacation and $500 to spend wherever you want. And I'll, I'll, I'll go up a little bit more. I think at 15 years, we send you and your spouse, friend, whatever, you and your guest on a trip uh, to anywhere you want in the world to visit the 10 wonders of the world. It's worth about $10,000 and it includes $1,000 of spending money just after 10 years, right? Now, now, getting back to the watch, you see, most companies, when you retire, they give you a watch. What the heck do you need a watch for when you retire, right? You don't have to watch the time in it. You don't have to keep track of time when you retire. It's when you're starting you need the friggin' watch. And that's why we give you a watch of three. So getting back to the 10 years. So we have it all planned out. We give you the certificate, and all you have to do is tell my assistant, Linda Sincata, where you want to go and everything else is taken care of for you. All the reservations are made, everything's done for you at 10 years. And it goes from there. 15 years or 20 years. Uh, let's see, 20 years. Yes, the 20 years is a party, party like a rock star with, with as many friends as you can invite. I think it's worth $20,000 at 20 years. And, and here are the rock star places and the hotels and the ballrooms and everything. Invite as many people as you want to that party. Then at 30 years, we make you a philanthropist. We set up an account at Fidelity Charitable Gift Fund. We fund that account with $25,000. And that account is yours. You can give those monies away. And whichever charities you want, I don't even have to agree with them. I, you know. That, that, that costs me a little bit of my brain because there are some things I, I prefer you don't donate it to, but hey, it's a free world. It's your money now, $25,000. Give it in any amounts to anybody you want. So we're making our employees, we're giving you the opportunity to be a philanthropist. What other companies do that? Now recently, I'm gonna jump forward to 35 years, $35,000 to help you do your bucket list whatever you want this is it this is the time you're old enough make that list have fun because otherwise people probably wouldn't do it and that's a requirement that you do it on your bucket list this is not to be to pay down the mortgage it's not for the grandkids uh, education it's for your bucket list and we require that you tell us how you spent the money we want to share in that joy so that's what perseverance means to us we value it and we pay you to persevere. We reward you to persevere. And thanks for that, Dr. Bob. And if you're listening and you run and own a business, take heart how you treat your people. Well, what you do with that money and what you do with that time will determine outcomes. Perseverance. Life lessons from Dr. Bob here on Our American Stories.
tenderly Jesus is calling Calling for you and for me See on the portals He's waiting and watching Watching for you and for me This is Our American Stories, and you're listening to Alan Jackson singing the hymn softly and tenderly as he sings everything straight as an arrow. And this is our final thought segment. And this final thought segment comes from a student at Hillsdale College named Shiloh Carosa. I was up there in Michigan teaching for two weeks a group of young students about storytelling. And I asked each of them, A simple question. What are you going through? Tell me a story. We started putting different stories on the board. Shiloh was very quiet. After two classes, I sort of gave her some space. When everybody left, I approached her. And I said, what's up? What do you got? I haven't heard from you during the class. And She said, my my dad's dying. We found out he had cancer and he's not going to make it through the spring. I said, well, you're going through something. I said, why don't we write about it? Why don't you sit down and think about what you might want to do, what you might want to say to him? And so this is the story of Ken Carosa, a man who found himself locked in a battle with terminal brain cancer last spring. After raising a loving family in Grand Rapids, Michigan, Ken suddenly found his efforts redirected to a war he never planned to wage at the age of 58. Ken had spent the last 18 years homeschooling his two children, teaching part-time at Cornerstone University, and ministering in pulpits around Grand Rapids. More than anything, his life had been devoted to investing in other people's souls, striving to reach them and teach them the gospel of Jesus Christ and shower them with the same grace God had given him. In light of Ken's diagnosis, Shiloh decided to pass on his message while reminding her father of the powerful impact he had left on those around him, not least of all, his own family. Here, Shiloh. When my father was diagnosed with terminal brain cancer in 2015, my family knew our lives were going to look very different. No longer would my brother and I have our closest counselor there to help us navigate the rest of our college years and early adulthood. My father would soon find his remaining time riddled with medications, surgeries, and sympathy cards. He would be fortunate to reach two years, a number we all despised for its brevity. But my father viewed those two years as a precious window of time in which he could still invest in others, still spread God's mercy, and teach people to live life in such a way that they will be prepared when they lose it. In October of 2015, my father delivered a message to the men of Oak Hill Presbyterian Church titled, Preparing to Cross the Finish Line, which I will be quoting. As a man who spent his entire life devoted to discipling and exhorting others to pursue their Creator, he now found himself preaching the importance of being ready to meet their Creator. What follows is the message he wanted to leave the world with, a parting challenge for those willing to listen. And here are those words of Shiloh's dad. You cannot change the brevity of life. We have to all deal with that at one time or another. 
And we either get in touch with that or we don't. There's a way to deal with this. It's called preparation. What do you do to prepare for the day when you're told there's going to be a period after your sentence? You're going to be gone? I think what happens is, as Christians, we look at time and say, as long as I have it settled with Jesus, I'm okay. If anything happens, it's not if anything happens. It will happen. So what are you going to do to cultivate your preparation for the transition to the next life? Shiloh's dad continued. Six years ago, I lost two friends of mine in their 40s. It was just over with a heart attack. Both times. I couldn't believe that I had talked to them one day and they were gone the next. Oftentimes we think, as long as I'm saved, whatever happens, happens. But it affects the way you conduct your affairs. You start to ask, how am I going to spend my time? There's some aspect of this that we've got to think constructively about. Now, I'm not saying to get used to it all because death is part of life. Death is not part of life. If death were part of life, we wouldn't have tears. We wouldn't have separations that cause depression for people and all the heartache that goes with it. No, death is unnatural because we no longer live in the perfect world that God made. It's fallen because of sin. Jesus Christ, the Redeemer, the one who died on the cross and rose from the dead so our sin could be forgiven, gives us that opportunity of eternal life again. So you can prepare for death, and you need to think about how you look at God. I learned that in spades. Is God being tough? Is he being hard? Is he doing this to be mean? Or is God really at something special? 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 9 says this, No eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind can conceive what God has prepared for those who love him. Do you know what the Apostle Paul is saying? He's saying you can't see it, you can't hear it, you can't imagine it. But God has something even better where he is. But some of us are alienated from the idea that God is not going to shortchange us. My experience was that God took away the fear when I needed him to do that. I left Grand Rapids, going to the University of Michigan, hoping that I would have a good outcome from the surgery. But I also knew it was possible that I might not be coming back. Having your account settled is a really good thing. I'm not talking about wills and estates. I know I could talk about that, but that's not what I'm here for. I'm here to tell you that God gave me a little bit more time. My question for you is, do you have any idea how long you have? Are you going to get another five years, ten, six months? Maybe you won't be here tomorrow night. What are you doing to make sure that you're ready? Even in death, her dad was teaching and ministering to souls. Let's return back to Shiloh. My father loved people all his life and wanted them to know Christ personally. He provided my brother and me with a tangible example of living, resilient faith. He taught us to face life with the courage and confidence 
that God will carry us through any storm we face, even if it's the storm that ends our life. He taught us to live each day intentionally, to be ready, and to hold nothing back because we never know if we'll have tomorrow. As his daughter, I can say that he held nothing back in raising my brother and me. When he returned home from his first surgery, he opened up about his own feelings. He told me he was satisfied with the way he'd spent his life as a Christian, and knowing what he'd done, I could see why. He'd pastored a church, he'd taught at a Christian university, he'd spread the gospel through the radio and written publication. But when he sat across from me that day, he didn't mention any of those things. He looked me in the eye and said, You and your brother are my best investments. When I remember those words, I'm reminded of the years he spent homeschooling us. The evenings we went fishing in the lake. The times he took us camping, even though he never cared for life in a tent. The advice he was always so willing to dispense when we needed it. The late-night conversations when we were too engrossed to look at the clock. All the nights he and my mom tucked us into bed. Looking ahead, we don't know how much time my father has left. Perhaps only a matter of months. No, he will probably not walk me down the aisle. No, he will not see his grandchildren. But compared to what he's done for us in the time he had, those things become pretty small. He gave us his parting message as a reminder to use the time we have. So I want to take this opportunity to remind him of the meaning he poured into my life. Thanks, Dad. And beautifully done, Shiloh. And Ken, her father. My goodness, what a thing all of us want our daughters to say. She said, as his daughter, I can say that he held nothing back in raising my brother and me. She also said, he looked me in the eye and said, you and your brother are my best investments. Beautiful. Life is short, and it seems too short when you share it with people you love. But Ken Carosa's life serves as testament to the power of God's grace and the importance of being ready. Habib and this is Our American Stories and now it's time for another of our American Dreamers segments brought to us by the great folks at Job Creators Network and what they do is work hard to help small businesses turn into bigger ones by fighting for policies that help them invest more in their companies and in their employees and in the end in their communities and joining us now is Joseph Sempervivo CEO and President of Joseph's Light Cookies and Joseph thanks for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Hey, Joseph, let's start where we always start with these stories at the beginning. Tell us about your family, your childhood, and where you grew up. Yeah, so uh, my mom and my dad had uh, uh, gave me an older sister and an older brother, and uh, I'm the baby of the family, and uh, they grew up in New Jersey, and 
moved to New Mexico and lived, you know, lived out there for about a good 25 years in a small southern town called Deming, New Mexico, about 18,000 people. And, uh, you know, the interesting thing is we moved because my dad had a, a printing press and he was working in the printing press every day. And the printing press one day uh, caught onto his fingers and sucked his whole arm in and flattened it like a piece of paper, as thin as a paper. It was a web press. And the winters were so, so harsh uh, that he, my dad couldn't take it in New Jersey any longer and said, I have to escape uh, the winter. And uh, I'm, you know, we're going to go to New Mexico. Never, never been there, but just hopped in our station wagon and drove across uh, the country in a station wagon, a dog, brother, sister, mom, and dad, and uh, landed in the town. And my parents saw it and said, this is going to be our home. And that was it. That's how we started. And, you know, a lot of Americans are listening to that going, wow, that sounds crazy. But other Americans, especially born into entrepreneurial families, are going, hey, that happened to me. So that's why we love telling these stories, Joseph. What, what's the hardest thing you had to witness growing up, Joseph? Well, you know, at, at, at six years old, I'm, you know, I moved from New Jersey to New Mexico. So I was, at a, I was at an age where I was still sheltered and cushioned by my mom and my dad. Um, and I didn't really have much observation. But I think the biggest thing, you know, at nine years old, I was diagnosed with diabetes. And the doctor told my parents I'd be dead at 18. And we were not, we were far from a wealthy family. So when that happened, my parents, had, they had about $1,000 in the bank. They took that money and they took me to Boston to, to Jocelyn Clinic, a diabetes hospital, to to see, you know, if that, if that, uh, diagnosis was actually correct if I was going to live till 17, 18 years old. And uh, they said, oh, no, you could live a normal life if you, if you take care of yourself. So I think the biggest challenge for me was to actually watch my parents um, emotionally struggle with the horrible news that they were delivered with, um, that was that their son wouldn't live past the age of 17, and I was only a nine-year-old boy at the time. And, th- and that was a pretty big struggle. We've had several other struggles, like financially watching my parents lose everything they had uh, in the restaurant business. There was you know, a lot of different struggles. Dig into that restaurant struggle, but you, know, you, you made a proper point, which is that the hardest thing for a parent to see, hey, look, parents can withstand financial setbacks, but the health of their children and perhaps the life of their children, my goodness, this always is the most paramount thing to any functioning family. But talk about the financial crisis, because it wasn't an ordinary financial crisis you went through and your family did. No, not at all. As a matter of fact, I was diagnosed at nine. When I was diagnosed, it was in a small town, like I said, uh, of Deming. Didn't have a lot of medical care or no endocrinologists or anything like that. So my parents, as you know, what an amazing parents that they are, um, tried to sell everything, move to the next town over in Las Cruces. Uh, they moved literally next door to the hospital in case anything happened to me. Um, they opened up a restaurant in the town and then they ended up with four restaurants. My parents worked for 30 years as all entrepreneurs, seven days a week, eat, sleep and breathe the business. And finally one day, uh, cause I said, mom and dad, I would love to spend some time with you. And my time being spent with my parents was normally at the restaurant after school. That's when we would eat our meal before the dinner rush. We'd have dinner at four o'clock before everybody showed up at five. And, uh, my mom and dad said, you know what, we're going to take a vacation. And they took the first vacation in 30 years to San Diego, to SeaWorld. Uh, we drove there, we came back 
and my parents' restaurant was empty, literally. Um, all the furniture was sold. The manager stole everything, sold everything, uh, racked up bills above $18,000 through the food purveyors, you know, the, uh, the suppliers and vendors to the restaurant. And my parents just looked at each other in awe and said, it's all gone. Everything we've worked for is now gone. This was my mom and dad's, um, you know, my cousin, my mom and dad's niece, her boyfriend, her fiance is the one who actually, he was a manager there, stole everything from, from my parents. He got away with $75 restitution and didn't sit, didn't spend more than a day in jail. And uh, that caused my parents to lose everything. They try, you know, they try to save it for about 18 months. But on the handshake, this kind of gives you, the, you know, the word of a person. On this handshake, my dad promised every purveyor, I will pay you back. Um, I don't, I don't know if it will take me one year, five years, ten. I promise you this, my word, I will, I will pay you back. And they laughed. Um, they didn't laugh years later when my dad physically walked in and handed them a check plus interest to pay him in full. Um, and, and keeping in mind, my dad actually filed bankruptcy and lost, you know, because we lost everything. So he filed bankruptcy, and even, even though he did, he still made it good because they didn't get anything. There was no money left for them to get. My dad kept his word years later and, and paid each of the purveyors in full. And you're lucky to have had an example like that, Joseph, because, you know, my dad always said the same thing. Look, just because you file for bankruptcy doesn't mean you can't pay the people back one day. And that weighs heavy on some people that, my goodness, I took money from them. I promised I'd give it back. And no matter what, I'm going to live up to that promise. So great, great example. You also learn, by the way, that running a business, my goodness, you not only have to face the competition, you not only have to face changing demographics and needs of customers, but my goodness, turn your eyes and the help could steal from you too, Joseph. You, you do. You have a lot of external challenges and internal challenges as well. And people don't think about that. What people think about when they hear about a restaurateur or an entrepreneur, oh, well, they're wealthy. They're, you know, they're completely rich and they have no worries. Until you, f- you walk in the shoes of that entrepreneur or that restaurateur, you, you will then realize that it's a seven-day uh, business. You don't turn a switch or lock a door and everything goes away. It's not locked inside of a little jewel box. It's on your shoulders literally every single day. And it, and it weighs on you. And when you lose everything, my dad was 50. My dad was 50 years old when he lost everything. And his head was in his hands at the kitchen table at home. And I'll never forget it. He says, what am I to do? He says to my mom, um, his wife, he says, what do I, what am I to do? We just lost everything we had. I tr- I entrusted this guy. I go away. We come back. Everything's gone. And my mom said, look, Stop feeling sorry for yourself. You made it before, you make it again. You know, feeling feeling bad for yourself is is going to do nothing for you, but to, but to um, to feed failure. And so my dad said, "You know what? You're right." And my dad became a cook at a Holiday Inn. My mom became a waitress, and uh, because I'm a diabetic, and they had to pay for my medical supplies. And you know, I'm about eleven and a half year old years old at this time, and. Um, they they got those jobs so they could pay for my medicine. And I noticed, Lee, every time when my mom was cooking, we'd sit down for dinner, she was never eating. And I said, Mommy, how come you're not eating? She goes, oh, I, I ate and I snacked while I was cooking. I'm full right now. My dad wasn't eating either, but my brother, my sister, and myself always had a, a plate of food 
um, you know, pot, you know, pasta-driven food, but um, how parents sacrifice for their love of their children and what they'll do and putting ego aside and pride aside, being your own boss, your own business owner, and, and putting that aside and becoming a cook and becoming a waitress. I mean, to me, that's a true, you know, true uh, show of character. It is, and humility too. And in the end, yep. it takes a lot to be humble, but you know, that's what good parents do. When we come back, more on the life of Joseph Sempervivo. And we're talking about our American Dreamer series as always. And he's the CEO, president of Joseph's Light Cookies, his American dream, his family's American dream, here on Our American Story. joined with Joseph Sempervivo and it's our American Dreamer series here on Our American Stories. And Joseph, we left off with quite a story. Your parents sacrificing, losing everything to a to an employee who had stolen from them and well just wanting to take care of their kids. Uh, one took a job as a chef, your dad and your mom as a waitress. Talk about your now entry into this world of entrepreneurship. You're a diabetic and yet here you are the CEO and president of Joseph's Light Cookies. Talk about where you got the idea first to become this thing called an entrepreneur. And Joseph, especially after seeing what your family went through. You see, entrepreneurs, we always hear about when they win. We rarely hear about when they lose. Unfortunately, that's the case. I mean, I think there's always a learning experience when you hear about the success of an entrepreneur, but especially about the the loss or the setbacks that entrepreneurs experience. You know, my, my mom and dad, uh, once my dad became a cook and my mom became a waitress, uh, a gentleman walked in one day and every day ate at the restaurant at the Holiday Inn. Um, it was a local restaurant as well as a hotel and said, your food is so delicious, he says to my dad. Um, I would love for you to have a, a, a restaurant here. Um, I have an empty restaurant. Um, I'll be happy to rent it. My dad said, look, I, you know, I've had enough of the restaurant business and I have no money. I mean, I filed bankruptcy. I don't have a dollar to, to pay. He goes, look, I'll give you the first month free and it's $650 a month rent. Now, we're, we're talking about 36 years ago, 37 years ago, to put it into perspective. And... And you can get started immediately. So my dad gave a month notice to his employer and and opened up the restaurant. Standing room only Italian restaurant was a huge success. Sat about 20 tables. And um, each day, my dad said, I want to do something different. I want to make a gourmet ice cream. So each day he served um, as a, a complimentary dish to each of the guests. And he said, because I want to lure them in and keep them coming back and create a positive word of mouth type of campaign. And that's exactly what he did because he had no money at that point to advertise. And people came in, they raved about the ice cream. And every day, as my parents went to always instill responsibility and accountability to me, said, you're going to, you know, you're going to make this ice cream with me after school. And so I made this gourmet ice cream and I'm looking at it, I'm salivating. I'm a diabetic, I can't even taste it. And I said, look, I want this ice cream. I want to eat this ice cream. I can't have it. I want to make it sugar-free. And my dad said, you know the recipe's son of the regular ice cream. Play around with it. See if you can come up with a sugar-free ice cream. Well, some weeks passed. I came out, my face was paintedly in pink. 
I had ice cream all over my face. And my mom started screaming, what are you doing? You're diabetic. You're going to kill yourself. And I said, no, mom, it's sugar-free. And we tasted it. It was delicious. And when we froze it, though, it came out like a block of ice, solid rock hard ice. And my dad modified it made it super creamy, we increased the butter fat, made it really creamy, and I said, Dad, Mom, I can't just make this for myself. I feel bad. I want to share this with other diabetics like myself and put it in little pints, and so we did. And it was called Sempre Vivo's Ice Cream, my last my last name. And it had a little picture of me, this 12-year-old boy, on the ice cream. And we started selling it in one store, rolled it out to 197 stores. I didn't have a driver's license, and my dad had an Astro van. We converted to a freezer van. And every day, I like to say I had a chauffeur at the age of 12. My dad had to drive me everywhere. We went all throughout the state of New Mexico to Texas and to Arizona to deliver to these 197 stores. We did that for about three years. And I said, when, when a freezer and a retailer broke down and I had to throw away a thousand pints of ice cream, the next day it happened again. I had to throw away another 800 pints that I just delivered working uh, late, late at night to deliver it, uh, to make it and then deliver it. So I lost 1,800 pints in a two day period. I said, Mom, Dad, could you make me a sugar free cookie? And they did. And they made the very first sugar free cookie in the world in 1986. And I said, That's it. I cried. It was 10 a.m. on a Saturday. It was an oatmeal cookie. And I said, I have to share this with my other diabetic friends. And so we put them in bags and we started selling them to those same 197 stores. And, you know, now, of course, we're, we're uh, you know, we, we distribute nationally and internationally as well. And how many cookies do you make a day, Joseph? Because it's astounding. 12 million cookies a day. 12 million cookies a day and you ship them you you package them right there in new mexico and who carries them what what companies carries them because i think there are a couple of pretty big names that carry your product yes we're on walmart.com we're at big lots uh stores we're in whole foods um we're in in and out with uh, dollar tree and uh so that was a big thing we wanted our cookies to be a great value and uh, so our cookies often sell for about a dollar to a dollar 49 a bag that's fantastic. And what's a work week like at Joseph's Light Cookies? And how many people work for you, Joseph? We have nine people that work for Joseph's uh, Light Cookies. And uh, a typical work week, I'm up at 4.30 in the morning, and I go until pretty close to 11, 12 o'clock at night each night. I usually carve out about an hour and a half a day to be with my family. I have six kids, one on the way, my wife and I. And so work is, you know, it's, it's literally seven days a week. And tell us about one of the funniest stories to come out of your work, Joseph. One day uh, I'm at the office and we get a phone call uh, from, from the White House. And they said, this is the White House calling. Can I, uh, for President uh, Bush, uh, can, we, can I, we speak to Joseph Semper Vivo? And the person who answered the phone hung up on, we say, the president. And the, uh, we get a phone call back five minutes later and said, this is the president uh, liking this, you know, to speak to Joseph and Lawrence Sempre Vivo. And we get on the phone and my dad hears a voice. And my dad hangs up on the president and uh, said, this, is, this can't be, this is not real. And the president calling this little town in Deming. And uh, the phone rings again and he said, listen, I, I am the president. 
And, uh, and so I want to call to invite you to the White House uh, for the American Success Award in, in the Rose Garden. Um, your son is a national officer in VICA, Vocational Industrial Clubs of America. And, you know, he started this little company, and now we're seeing your cookies pop up everywhere. And we would like to honor your company for, for doing great things. And uh, so it was just really kind of an amazing, amazing thing. But we were cracking up laughing. And I always tell my dad, Dad, you realize that... Uh, you hung up on the president of the United States, and he says, "No, son, we hung up on the president." Yeah, that's one that's hard to forget, Joseph. We always ask our American dreamers, our small business owners, you know, your employees, their health care, their their lives. I mean, what what I think most folks don't understand is that you're thinking about payroll and meeting those payroll because those families rely on you. And the pressure on small business owners is strong and profound. But talk about your, your employees, a couple of names. that they're, they, they matter to you in your business. Talk about that. Yeah, that, that's the thing. With our company and with all small businesses across America, um, they're, they're not numbers. They're actual people. We know their families. Uh, we share holidays together. Um, you know, Linda, Linda Pierce has been with me for 26 years. Uh, she works on the assembly line. She's a team leader on the assembly line. Uh, Anthony is in the shipping department, and he also floats around in the factory as well when needed. Jonathan, he's our dough production coordinator he mixes all the dough in the factory and mike is you know our national sales manager and i know them um, individually how long they've served our company um and you know their their children's names i go to their kids birthday parties when they have them on the weekend and we're we're very engaged and very active and you know that and you know that's the thing is i i celebrate it when we got a tax cut getting those it was a direct impact a direct effect on my team members at work i mean you know linda's getting a dollar an hour raise because of the tax cuts anthony is getting the same raise uh john is getting a dollar 50 an hour raise and mike is getting a raise i mean they're 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 all getting raises because it frees up cash rather than reserving cash you know, I always say reserving cash in a bucket, waiting for your taxes to be due. You have to put this money aside in a bank account. So then you have the money when the time comes to pay taxes. Now that money is freed up. A percentage of that money is freed up. And I could free that up by, release, by unleashing those funds to some of my team members as a thank you for their sacrifice. Because there's been a many of years that I've... I've foregone my paycheck so I could make payroll for them, and you know, sacrificed um, on on our end as a, you know, as you know, the owner of the company and stuff. So, um, you know, this tax cut was a huge, huge thing, and to me, it was a Christmas gift for years and years to come. For not not my cookie company, not for for just my team members, but for all of our customers out there and internationally, because it also enabled us to roll out a Chinese packaging that we're working on right now uh, that we'll be able to sell our product to China, to Chinese consumers, um, and and us have a competitive advantage in, in China. And you are hearing from Joseph Sempervivo, Joseph's Light Cookies, and 12 million cookies a day he makes. And by the way, that's why we do these stories, folks. You're hearing it right from the owner's mouths. And Job Creators Network is the sponsor of this American Dreamer story and all of our American Dreamer stories because you heard it at the end 
When taxes go down on small businesses, they can hire more, they can expand their plant. And again, we don't do politics on this show, but my goodness, we do do math on this show and common sense on this show. And we're always fighting for the little guy here. And Joseph Sempervivo is a perfect example, giving raises to his people, giving bonuses, and then talking about expanding marketing to China. What a difference that can be. And that's what he's going to do with that Christmas gift he was just talking about. Again, as always, our American Dreamer segment is brought to us by the great folks at Job Creators Network, fighting for small businesses across this country and turning the American dream into a reality for all of those people on main streets across this great country. This is Our American Story, Joseph Sempervivo's story, small businesses story. Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. It's time now for another look at health care. And here's our chief health editor, Jim Glassman, introducing our next What Happens When story. You're listening to the theme music of the Clint Eastwood movie, The Good, the Bad, and the Ugly, a spaghetti western about finding a gold fortune. But the title could just as easily have been describing health care in the 21st century. The good? Patients are living longer and better than ever before. The bad? The system is so complicated that we don't have a clue how even basic things work or cost. The ugly? Well, there are some diseases that just aren't fair. And the path to discovering treatments for those diseases is awfully complicated. But as we'll see, there's plenty of love, hope, and even joy in stories with great tragedy. This What Happens When episode is what happens when your baby daughters are diagnosed with a fatal disease. And it comes to us from our field correspondent, Faith Garcia. Take it away, Faith. There is no easy way to talk about this subject. So we're going to just take it head on. Right now we're on a grief journey, right? I mean, it's changed a lot for our lives since diagnosis. And now since Mila's died, the grief journey started before she died because the anticipatory nature of our situation with the girls and Batons. But then even with Mila dying, that you're really on a new, on a real grief path. I mean, a different, much more tangible grief path that we each work through, and we are at different spots, and those paths have totally different routes through the maybe even different forests, but at the end of the day, you are going to the same place. I mean, I have to talk about it like I know what I'm talking about, and I don't. I mean, I feel like I'm two steps into my grief path, which will last a lifetime. That's Frazier Gieselman who, with his wife Dana, kindly welcomed us into their home in Memphis to talk about having two daughters with a rare genetic disease called CLN2 Batten disease. This condition causes protein to accumulate in the brain, killing working cells and leading to language problems, seizures, 
losing the ability to walk, blindness, dementia, and eventually death. Batten claimed the Gieselman's middle daughter, Mila, just three weeks after her sixth birthday. And their youngest daughter, Elle, is fighting it now with the help of some new cutting-edge drug therapies. But to understand the Gieselman family's healthcare story, we have to start with their love story. Frazier and Dana overlapped by a few years in high school in Memphis. But Dana moved away to Birmingham, Alabama when she was 15. Lucky for Frazier, they both wound up attending college at Auburn and fell into the same group of very close friends. And once they began dating, well, things moved pretty fast. We pretty much knew that uh, things were serious from the get-go. Whatever. I knew I had to tie it down (laughs) before she ran away. (laughs) So, yeah, I wasn't going to mess around with that and was eager to keep that ball rolling. So we got married. That was So we graduated from Auburn in 2000. It was the spring of 02. And, you know, we had been friends, and the, being group friends helped. You know, we knew each other real well. I mean, the whole group did, the guys and the girls. So as things kind of changed between me and Dana, and I went to her, and I was like, hey, I think things are kind of changing, and kind of want to see where that goes. And she was like, no, no, we're not doing that. I'm in Birmingham. You're in Memphis. No. So two weeks went by, and I called her back, and I was like, okay, you're full of doo-doo, you know. She was like, okay, I am. And I was like, great, let's roll. So that springboard took off great for about two months. We did the long distance thing from Birmingham. And the whole time in my head, I mean, I knew her well enough. And I was at a point where I was like, I'm not doing this to date forever. I I didn't date a whole lot of people. You know, it wasn't my thing, I guess. So when this started going, I kind of knew what we were doing and where I wanted to go. And then she came back about a month before we got engaged and said, hey, this ain't gonna work. I can't do long distance and I'm never moving to Memphis. Because we were in two different cities and we had such a strong foundation for the last couple of years, when he approached me about dating, it just, I think, kind of panicked me because it was a big decision. It wasn't just, hey, let's go out to dinner and see what happens. We were long distance and the friendship was going to throw it immediately into serious territory. And so I think I just freaked out a little bit at the beginning and then realized what we had with our relationship. And I just really admired the way that he pursued me, honestly, and was just so strong in that way and knowing what he wanted and not letting my fears, unfounded fears, get in the way of that. Just kind of being able to see through me in a good way. And then about a month or six weeks into dating, um, yeah, I, I kind of freaked out again and didn't want to move to Memphis and just kind of had a little come apart. He talked to me back from the ledge and again just like he had told me before he was in it and not going anywhere and I was able to struggle with all my own fears and doubts knowing that he was gonna stay and that gives you freedom right to to work through things when you're not scared that person's just gonna bolt especially when they start to see you know some yucky sides of you And we all have a yucky side. When we come back, more from Frazier and Dana Gieselman, more of their love story, their family story, 
and their healthcare story here on Our American Stories, our What Happens When story. This is Our American Stories, and we return to our What Happens When series, as always brought to us by our Chief Health Editor, Jim Glassman, Faith Garcia, doing the narrating and reporting. Let's get back to the Gieselman story in Memphis. The Gieselmans did not waste any time. They dated for three months, were engaged for three months, and then the newlyweds were off on their adventure together. Looking back today on their childhoods, families, churches, and years together before the birth of their first daughter, Anne Carlisle, the Gieselmans see it all as just preparation for the challenges to come. There's a, a foundation there where you realize that the way you act out in marriage is just reflective of a lot of things, but it's death to self, right? And if, I, if, if I'm dying to myself, Putting her first as far as our marriage goes, that plays itself out in a lot of aspects in life. And, of course, nobody's perfect at it. And, of course, we certainly stub our toes and <laughs> takes a lot of work. But having the friendship that we built on and that foundation has helped a lot for where we are today. We didn't know it then. I mean, we had no clue that what we were doing then was laying the foundation we would need for now. Which, I mean is directly tied to to Christ and our faith and what those truths are in our lives and what we see it play out from day to day and and looking back and I mean just in little things even getting the six months and getting married you know and we had good time that seven years before we had in Carlisle was great time for us to build our relationship we needed a little extra time Of course, it wasn't all goofing off during those years. Frazier built a career in banking and Dana found a new calling. She had graduated with an exercise science degree, but she had always thought about becoming a nurse. Except that hospitals made her queasy. Not to mention needles. But she figured she could get over it if she wanted it bad enough. And nearby, Union University allowed college graduates to get a BSN degree in nursing in just one year. It was a hard a hard year, but I'm very glad, and I did get used to hospitals and queasiness. Got used to. Um, I mean, tell And I went and worked after graduating uh, at Le Bonheur Children's Hospital in the NICU. 
That's the neonatal intensive care unit. Which is a special calling, which you are gifted to be called into that. I mean, every time I've only been up to the NICU, I think twice, I can't go in. I mean, it's a very hard place and hard to see the kids suffering, but it's beautiful to see Dana and the people that most of the people that work up there love those kids and are not intimidated at all. In fact, that gives them more reason to embrace, which, I mean, I respect a ton the people that are able to do that, which is a big deal. I mean, you didn't fall backwards into that. I mean, you were called, I mean, it was clear, like, I'm doing this, this is what I love, and it's been great seeing your passion. I mean, that was not just... (laughs) Well, and it seems that God was preparing me to even medically take care of my own children. Indeed, he was preparing them. The Gieselmans soon started having their own children. We had Ann Carlisle in 2009, and then <laughs> our brilliant plan was, once we start having kids, let's go ahead and have them so that as you move through each phase, you, you don't revisit it, right? So diapers being a big one. Once we put the diapers away, I don't want them back out, right? <laughs> so let's, get, let's go through. So we did, uh, they're basically 18 months apart. So 2009, 10, and 12. Well, and we were able to get pregnant the first time pretty quickly, but we lost that baby with a miscarriage. And then it took us a while to get pregnant again. So that was a pretty hard time as well in our lives. When we had the miscarriage, we were upstairs in the panel room, you know, just sat up there crying for a while. I mean, I remember saying it then, I'm not going anywhere. I'm just here with you. I don't know what that looks like. I don't know what our path is. I'm not saying it's going to be easy, but I know that I'm not, I mean, I'm here. And that's where you're, you realize what it does is it frees you to be broken. And as far as me and Dana go, I mean, it just was this deal. It's like, look, I'm, I want to be here. It's not just I'm going to be here. It's not just I don't have anywhere else to go. It's I want to be here. I'm not, <laughs> I well, don't want... You- you have to but you've built- actively love someone. You have to make a choice. You just have to choose to to be with that person. And I think fostering a friendship and keeping that friendship alive through our marriage. And Frazier and Dana have chosen well. Soon they had three beautiful daughters. Ann Carlisle, Mila, and Elle. Everybody was born healthy and had, you know, normal development. Mila had a speech delay, but other than that, they were all extremely active, strong-willed, silly babies. I, I joke because I'm, I grew up very shy and introverted. I just kept waiting for my little introverted child to come along, and none ever did. <laughs> they all got the Gieselman jeans on that, which is wonderful. I think it's helped all three of our children to have a feisty personality, even in just different ways. And then one day, Dana noticed something odd with their middle daughter, Mila, the one they like to call rough and tumble, because she so loved playing and being a complete ham. She was about two and a half and um, he had gone out of town for work and I had a babysitter coming over because I was going to go have dinner with some girlfriends. Right before the sitter got there I had been feeding the three girls their dinner 
and Mila had finished and had gotten up and was kind of playing in the kitchen and I looked over and she was just frozen in space one leg up one arm kind of up like a statue just frozen and I thought she was kidding with me because she's was so silly all the time and I just kind of was distracted with the other two girls but kind of looked back at Mila and saying you know you silly goose what are you doing after a couple minutes of that she fell down on her back and kind of bonked her head just a little bit so I went over there and you know like you do with kids you try not to make an injury a big deal because (laughs) then they'll think it's a big deal so it's like oh you hit your head it doesn't hurt you're fine you know and um, so I was kind of doing that tickling her and she wasn't responding and I still kind of I kind of was like this is weird but again distracted by the other two still thinking she was just kidding with me and laying there and then I tickled her again got no response her eyes were open but no response and she was kind of looking up at the ceiling and I knew at that point something was wrong I'm there by myself I've got a one-year-old and a four-year-old trying not to freak out minutes go by I can't get Mila to respond to me and at that point I knew it was either seizure stuff or I thought she could possibly be having a stroke my babysitter gets there run to the door to let her in and tell her to call 911 it was one of the most scary times of my life just not knowing if I'd ever get her back she started to kind of come back around but I had her in my arms and she was just sobbing and wailing my name. I was, you know, holding her close, kissing her, hugging her, talking right into her ear and she could not, like she did not know I was there. Not being able to comfort your child even, and she was just so scared and and all that was just very difficult and obviously not having Fraser there too. but the. Paramedics finally got there. Everything happening so fast that I think all I texted Fraser, I tried to call him, but he was at like a dinner with business, and so he didn't answer, and I texted, Mila's in the ambulance, called me. So, of course, he's like, what in the world? But we, you know, they took us to Love Honor, and she was fine the rest of the night. They wanted to observe her and everything. And that began the Gieselman family's quest to figure out what it was that was happening. It actually isn't all that odd for a kid to have one seizure, but that's not what Mila was going through. As the seizures picked up in the fall, from November to January, it went from one a month to 100 plus a day in January, and it only ramped up from there. Mila was soon in and out of various labs, getting all sorts of brain scans and other studies but nothing offered a clear answer. Scans showed that Mila's brain was not growing, and then an MRI showed that it was actually degenerating. Our doctor knew it fell into a category of rare diseases that you don't want, (laughs) and that would take her life at an early age. I remember us sitting on that couch in the room and him sitting across from us telling us and like, I just, I didn't shed a tear. I was kind of like in medical mode and asking medical questions and things and thinking, this is weird. Why am I not crying? But then he left the room and I literally just couldn't stand. And when we come back, this young married couple faces the biggest test of their lives. Our What Happens When story continues 
The Gieselman Story This is Our American Stories, and we're continuing with the health care story of the Kieselman family. We just learned how parents Fraser and Dana got the most devastating news possible for young parents, any parents, that their daughter Mila, who was having hundreds of seizures a day, had a mystery disease that would almost certainly claim her life. Let's hear more from Dana. That was kind of the night we were having to deal with. Okay, life is not what we thought it was going to be. Neither of us could eat. You know, we spent the week just going, what in the world? I mean, there were no words, kind of. We would just sit there and go, what is happening? Two or three days after we left the hospital, they called us and said they had the genetic results. So then we knew it was actually Batten disease and that they could have it, the other two girls could have it, and that we needed to get them tested. So we went a month in the limbo of just trying to deal with what we knew about Mila at that point, and oh my gosh, do one of the other girls have it? Do they both? Will they all have this? And we were in the middle of moving to this house and doing some renovations. So it was just a crazy time. I was standing in the foyer directing the movers, where to put things. It was about 6 o'clock at night, and I get a phone call from our neurologist. And, you know, on a Saturday night, <laughs> not good. He said, is Fraser around? Can I, y'all both get on the phone? And so we went outside and, and did, and he told us that Ann Carlisle didn't have it, wasn't even a carrier, but that Elle did. I remember exactly where we were sitting over there on the grass outside. And there were, you know, 20 people in our house, movers, family, friends, wonderful people trying to get us moved. So we kind of walked around the neighborhood a little bit, and, and I was like, everybody has to get out of the house. Like, I can't go back to the house and have 20 people in there, and nobody would clear out. Everybody was like, we've got to get the furniture. We've got to get, like, we at were, least Dana's bed sheets on. Of course, you we know, were like, but, no, you don't. Yeah. Get out. But, um, so... Some people stayed for a little bit longer, and he just, Fraser, wonderfully led me through the house and tucked me away in our room so I didn't have to deal with anything else, and he kind of just took over, and he's done that a lot. (laughs) Just protected me and kind of sheltered me from a little bit of the storm as much as he can. And the next day was Mella's birthday. And the hits... They just kept on coming. Three days after we found out her diagnosis is when Elle had her first seizure. Just watching TV, you know, half asleep on the couch, and Elle let out, like we heard on the monitor, like this kind of weird cry, like that she had never done before. And usually, you know, when a baby or toddler lets out one cry, you're kind of like, okay, let's see if they'll get back to sleep on their own. But fortunately, Fraser went back there immediately and comes running out with her Elle's having a seizure. I mean, it just was kind of in that time period of like, what more, like, what more can we, I can't take anymore. And then more would just be like piled on, piled on, piled on. (laughs) 
Now with two young daughters who were having up to hundreds of seizures a day, the Gieselmans went into full caretaker mode. Modern medicine is absolutely amazing, but any good doctor will still admit that they have to do a lot of trial and error with all the tools in their kit. For these seizures, the Gieselmans had to figure out what drugs to use, at what doses, and in what combinations. So the med combo we played, literally changing either meds or doses of meds once or more a week with Mila for over a year. To the point, like, we had to keep a written list. She was on anywhere from two to eight different medicines, three, four times a day. And she did lay a good path for Elle where we weren't playing as many games, a little bit more doses, not meds. So that was helpful. But with Mila, I mean, it was just... We had to write down the meds, and every time they change, you got to go through and change what the meds are. So we had the drawer with the sheet of paper, which literally was having to be reprinted every two weeks because you've made so many written changes on it. These drugs helped control the seizures, or at least reduce them. But that's just managing the most terrifying symptom, not treating the actual Batten disease. A friend of Fraser's had invested in a drug company called Biomarin and told Frazier about a doctor in Columbus, Ohio, named Emily De Los Reyes, who was running a clinical trial that might help kids with Batten. Of course, Frazier and Dana sprung into action. The doctor was very kind, but she told them at the moment the study was closed, but that they should keep in touch, and that they did. We heard about the Batten's Disease Conference they do every year, and it was in Chicago. We found out about it about a week ahead of time, and we found out that Dr. Emily was going to be there. They were doing this study, and I don't know if I read somewhere or I heard somewhere that maybe someday it'd open up to more people. So we basically rearranged our schedule two days before the conference and just said, me and Dana are going, and we begged friends. Yeah, we begged friends to help keep the girls. So we get up there, and we hung out with Dr. Lawald, who is works with Dr. Emily, and Dr. Emily De Los Reyes, and just had a great time. I mean, that was our main purpose for going. We decided to go see Emily once every six months. Building that relationship with Dr. Emily, we were hopeful they were going to open a compassionate care, which means the drug, which is being studied in a clinical trial setting, then the FDA will allow additional patients to take it that are not being studied as part of the trial. Basically, it's, you've got no other option. This drug is out there. We haven't approved it, but we're going to let some more slots open up so that more patients can get access to what may or may not ever get approved as a drug. The deal was, if it was going to open, we knew it would be through Columbus Nationwide Children's Hospital, and so we were just willing to stay in touch with Dr. Emily in case it ever did, and it kind of grew and developed. And L got into the program in September of 16. This meant that Dana would fly up to Ohio with L once every two weeks to get this experimental treatment. She had to have a port put in her brain. That's a reservoir under the skin that sits on top of the skull that's got a little tube that goes down to the middle of her brain. So the medicine goes in through a shot which sits in the reservoir and they spray in to over four hours and it basically goes all the way down to the very center of her brain and then disperses from there and it's giving her an enzyme her body doesn't make which that's the deal and so that enzyme cleans out the proteins in the brain cells and if you don't clean out the protein it kills off the brain cells and what we're, what we're hopeful is, is that it'll stop the progression of the disease and then in time let her start reconnecting and rebuilding 
damaged or, 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 or what, I mean, you don't, it's just hard to say what part was killed off or is it a deflated balloon or did the balloon pop? You know, I don't know. We don't know and we're willing to take the chance to figure it out and we got time and you know, I can't worry about what that looks like in a year. I'm trying to get through to dinner tonight. And what a couple, the Gieselman's journey, a series of escalating challenges, dating, panic, marriage, miscarriage, and now this fatal diagnosis for two of their baby girls. And by the way, if you've ever seen Ordinary People, you know that most relationships don't survive such stress. That married Tyler Moore and Donald Sutherland film about the stress of a marriage when there was a loss of a life. And my goodness, this brought Frazier and Dana closer together. When we come back, the rest of this segment, what happens when your baby daughters are diagnosed with a fatal disease. And more on Frazier and Dana, their battle, here on Our American Stories. And go to OurAmericanNetwork.org, by the way, to listen to all that we do. There are quite a number of What Happens When series. We also have some really fascinating stories from doctors in the field and what they go through every day in life struggles and life-saving and life's most difficult circumstances. More after these messages. This is Our American Stories, and we're back with the final segment of our What Happens When Healthcare Story. The Gieselman's two baby daughters were diagnosed with a fatal disease, but the youngest, Elle, had just gotten into a drug trial to send a cutting-edge medicine into the center of her brain to slow the disease. Let's hear more about this story from Faith. Sadly, this trial and its compassionate use came too late to help Mila. She passed away on November 26, 2016. We first met the Gieselmans some months after that, and Frazier was kind enough to talk a little bit about a subject that none of us really know how to talk about. The best way to paint the picture of Mila's death, especially in my life, and I've, I alluded or kind of talked about how me and Dana have different paths that we're going on. And I mean, Mila, I'm still much, very much in what I would call the fog of the death. And it's not nearly as uh, a reality, an acute deal. Like it's very hard if we sit down at the computer and start flipping through pictures. Like that, that gets real hard because I mean, that'll snap you out of the fog real quick. But other than that, I mean, like, just day-to-day, I think about her a lot, but it just doesn't seem a reality. It's real fuzzy, and I have a hard time figuring out how that lifts, and I'm a little, I get frustrated that it hasn't lifted quicker, because I'm concerned that I'm not, that it's going to lift, and I'm going to have forgotten a lot of things, 
And so I wrestled through a lot of that through grief counseling and figuring out, like, I don't want to forget. I want to feel it, but there's a healthy side to the fog and the numbness so that you can make it through the initial, like, shock is a good thing, right? You've got to have some of that. And, like, where Dana is, her fog has lifted a lot more than mine, and so she knows she's missing an arm, and she feels the nerves all dangling out everywhere, you know? So it's a a very acute pain for her right now, and it looks different than mine. So grief can look a lot like depression, or sadness can look like depression, and they can be very different, but look a lot alike. And so that's kind of where we're a little different. And But but for me and, and where I am, I mean, there's a, it's just the, the the reality is not there, except it's very, there's a very empty feeling like something's not there. A lot of Fraser's friends ask him how he keeps working his day job, looking for treatments for Batten, and doing all the other normal daddy things during this fog of grief. He has this great answer. Well, man, if I don't get up and put cereal in the girls' bowls, who will? It's not a choice you're making. That's the deal. I mean, that's that's the deal. And so you just rest, and we get glimpses of a bigger, more beautiful plan going on here. And quite frankly, I get a glimpse every day when I look at a picture of Mila because she's healed. And 90% of the pictures you're going to see of Mila, she's not healed. She's got braces or whatever. And, you know, it's hard not to look at it and know that she's doing a lot better now than she was. I just wish she was with me, right? I mean, it's, you know, I miss her. Much more has happened since we first met the Gieselman family. The nonprofit Kemmons Wilson Family Center for Good Grief that has been a huge help to Frazier, Dana, their oldest daughter, Ann Carlisle, and all their family and friends, opened a new location in Midtown Memphis, named after Mila Gieselman. And with the support of individuals, foundations, and corporations, Mila's house will help many more families through their grief journeys at no cost to them. The FDA also approved BioMarin's enzyme replacement therapy for this form of Batten disease. The new treatment is called Brunura, and it was approved with priority review, breakthrough therapy, and orphan drug designations, which assists and encourage the development of drugs for rare diseases. Because Elle has been on that treatment as part of the Compassionate Use Program, the disease has progressed much more slowly in her than it did in Mila. But taking a little kid on a three-day plane trip every two weeks is no cakewalk, even under the best of circumstances. So now that Brunura is approved, the Gieselmans fought to get the treatment delivered at their local Memphis hospital. This took some doing. Quite a lot, actually. Frazier was on the phone with the insurance company for one to three hours a day, five days a week, for two months. Both the drug company Biomarin and the local Memphis Labonner Children's Hospital were very supportive. But Brunura was still an incredibly new, specialized, and expensive medicine in process. Eventually, Blue Cross Blue Shield agreed to cover Elle's treatment. I guess they also realized that when it comes to taking care of their kids, nothing can get in the way of Frazier and Dana. They just won't quit. Let's end on this note from Frazier. You know, when I was 25 and thinking where I wanted to be when I was 50 is different than where I am now and where I want to be at 50. You know, and we'll figure it out. It just may look a little different. We're not promised anything easy, good, or anything here. You're promised to be restored when you die and you're in heaven. So, you know, there is a bigger plan. 
we believe and know that God is using our story to bring more people to Him and to growth and do things bigger within His world. And I kind of remind people a lot of times, you know, it doesn't matter what if things are going good in my world or things are going bad in my world. I like it. I don't like it. Whatever. The sun's coming up tomorrow. And, you know, I can't stop the sun. I don't control the sun. It's just a kind of a reminder to get outside of your own head and realize that the earth, the world, nothing revolves around anything you get or don't get or what happens. That I can't stop that sun. And, you know, you just don't have as much control as you think you do. And I think it hits on, like, the whole marriage thing. And some of the foundations that we laid is you just trust, like, I'm going to die to myself because there's a bigger plan here. And what we've experienced is that in dying to yourself in a relationship here, you do experience things in a different way and in a deeper way. And it did lay a lot of foundation for a lot of what we've experienced in the last three to four years. But even before that, I mean, even before things got crazy in our family life and all, we still experienced a lot of that. There, there, there is a goodness. You experience a sense of joy, not necessarily happiness, which are different. And that's what I'd say we've experienced a lot of joy through everything we're going through. But we experienced a lot of that joy even before that. It's kind of like, I liken it to uh, when you tell somebody you love them, you know you love them. But uh, what we say a lot is, I like you. And the whole point being, like, I choose to love you. We made the vows, I made the commitments, and I'm not going anywhere. But also, I like you. Frazier, Dana, and Carlisle. Mila and Elle are hard people not to like. And great job to the entire team, as always. And now we're joined by our chief health editor, Jim Glassman. And Jim, we've heard a few of these stories now. This is a young Christian couple in the South. We had a secular couple in the Midwest. And I think we're going to be hearing from every type of faith, every class, and every creed of citizen here about our, our stories about health care. What does it take to discover, develop, and bring to market drugs like this one that are extending this incredible couple's young daughter's life? Well, drugs are very expensive to develop. So probably the best study of this done by a center at Tufts University and actually repeated uh, over many years now says that on average it costs $2.8 billion to bring a drug to market to go through a period which typically takes about 15 years, uh, many, many failures along the way. So it's it's not very easy, and it's extremely risky and extremely costly to bring a drug to the point where human beings can actually use it. And what about rare disease drugs in particular, Jim? As we mentioned, these drugs can be extremely expensive, but are often the only options for patients in life-or-death situations. How do these drugs fit into our healthcare system? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this is really the big problem because the the driver for the kind of money that needs to be spent on research for the typical drug, uh, all this money is really the result of the fact that at the end, you've got a, a market. I mean, I hate to use that word, but that's true. You've got an audience for a medicine that will save people's lives. In the case of, of orphan drugs or uh, diseases that very few people have, there's not that big an audience. And that's why public policy, government policy, has to somehow favor these kinds of drugs, give them a little bit of a boost. And when that happens, 
you see a lot more of these drugs come onto the market. And that really all began in the mid-1980s. And now we're really seeing a lot of orphan drugs being produced. And that's a great thing for families like the Gieselmans. And, Jim, I think just to clarify, you know, when we're looking at heart drugs, um, this, this disease affects so many people that drug companies are going to go in there because they're going to, well, let's face it, they're in, the, they're in the business to get a return. There are a lot of people who suffer from a heart disease. These are narrow, narrow diseases. Talk about that. That's right. So the government gives an incentive, which is basically the ability to get the drug approved very quickly and also uh, to essentially market uh, to other drug companies an ability to get drugs approved quickly. And this is, this is very important to drug companies. I mean, obviously, the drug has to meet the standards of the Food and Drug Administration, but there's a, a fast-track system. So that's the incentive, and I think that's a very good incentive that seems to be working. But I want to add one other thing that's really important. Drug companies learn, scientists learn from their failures. They learn even in a case where they're making a drug for a very small number of people. And what they learn in developing that drug for a small number of people can be applied to many. So we're going to see that, and we already are seeing that with orphan drugs. Well, Jim, thanks as always. And it's Jim Glassman, our chief health editor here at Our American Stories, our What Happens When series, and what a family, what a story. And thanks, Jim, as always, for bringing these stories to us. Thank you, Lee. You bet. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, the Gieselman's story, and what a story it is. Go to OurAmericanNetwork.org and hear more of our What Happens When series.